You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Let me start today with a quote, and then I'm going to have you guys turn in groups and discuss. Here's the quote. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might be aware of only three of them. Let me say it again. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might only be aware of three of them. I want you to turn to the people around you, maybe your spouse or the person that you're with, your sister or brother, whoever it is that's next to you. Uh, And I want you just to see if you can name, what are those two or three things that God is up to in your life right now? He's up to 10,000 things. But what are the two or three things that you can see in the moment? All right, turn to the person around you. Ready, set, go. Hopefully a couple of you at least had a chance to share maybe and name some of the things, uh, the ways that God is at work in your life. Often it's hard to figure out what he's doing. And yet, I think for all of us, if you're trying to, uh, to follow Jesus, I would say even all of humanity is seeking an experience in the presence of God. For some of us, we like to experience, or we seek the experience and presence of God in something that's spectacular, like God heals somebody, or He heals us, or He answers this big, bold prayer that we have. And those are incredible moments, and we see God work in miraculous ways, in the spectacular and then other of us, others of us maybe are more contemplative and we're looking for God maybe in the ordinary things, in His creation and what He's made, in a small interaction we have with a friend, in a moment of silence, we look for God in the ordinary, both the spectacular and the ordinary. And we're going to look at a passage today as we go, we're going through the story from creation to restoration. We're looking at a passage today where we see God show up in both the spectacular and the ordinary. To use two W words, we see God's presence in wonder and in a whisper in this passage. We're going to be looking at the story of Elijah. And so if you, uh, if you guys have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Let me give you some context of, of where we are in God's story. Uh, Rashto, if you were with us last week, did a great job of, uh, in a sense, putting us in the middle of the story. It's like entering into the scene of a movie. You've got to know the context of what's come before so you know how, the, how, the, or how you hope the story will end or what you think will come next. So if you remember in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, and through Abraham, he's going to bless the entire world. Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. Israel now is God's special people to be a light to the world. Well, they're enslaved in Egypt. 400 years, they're enslaved and oppressed by Pharaoh. God liberates them powerfully, brings them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. And yet they rebel against the God who just liberated them, and they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But finally, Joshua, the second Moses, leads Israel into the Promised Land. But once they get into the Promised Land, again, they rebel, and there's this cycle that develops that Nate Hughes talked about a couple weeks ago where the people rebel, they worship false gods, they're taken over by a foreign empire, they cry out to God, God delivers them, He raises up a judge, and the cycle repeats seven different times. Well, after the judges comes the kings, because Israel looked around, as Rasha said last week, and said, hey, like, we want to be like the other nations who have a king, a human king, 
We don't want God as our king. We want a human king. And so Saul was appointed king. Well, you know the story of Saul, hopefully. Maybe you've heard of him before. He fails as king. So then God raises up David as his anointed king. He makes a promise to David that through you, David, your line will reign forever. But if you know the story of David, he fails. Murder, adultery. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon asks for wisdom. God grants him wisdom. He's the wisest person to ever walk planet Earth. And yet he fails. He has over a thousand different women that he has some kind of relationship with at the end of his life. Downward spiral. From Solomon's line now, the kingdom breaks into two. So now you have a northern kingdom in Israel and a southern kingdom. You have good kings, but you have primarily bad kings that follow. And the story today is one of the worst kings, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And King King Ahab and Jezebel are encouraging God's people to worship the Canaanite god Baal. We're going to see that in our story today. So if you have 1 Kings chapter 18, you may be familiar with this story. It's, it, the, the scene is on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. Let me read this long passage here from 1 Kings 18. It says this, and starting in verse 19. 1 Kings 18, verse 19. There's going to be a battle that goes down here between the prophets of Baal this other God, and Elijah and the God Yahweh. It says this, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it in the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, hey, what you say is good. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Like he's like, dude, look, like there's 450. You should be able to do this a little bit quicker than I can by myself. Verse 26, uh, so many of you are, end of 25, call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Verse 29, midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was, listen to this phrase, there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took the 12 stones, one for each tribe descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two, I don't know how to even say that word, two bags of seed. Verse 33, 
He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it onto the offering and on the wood. Now, here's a note real quick to, to put in context. There's been three years of, fl- of drought. Three years of drought. And so now Elijah's gonna, you're gonna see this. He's gonna say, just keep throwing water on there. Like think about just the, the, uh, the craziness of in the middle of a drought, you're gonna just drench this fire with water. Drench it. There's no water. You're taking the little water that we have to throw it on the fire to make this even a bigger spectacle. Verse 34, do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Verse 40, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them get away. They seized him, and Elijah had them brought down to the valley and slaughtered there. So this is the first passage and the first story I want to look at today of the prophet Elijah and his battle with the prophet or the God of Baal. Yahweh versus Baal. Let me give you an insight from the passage, uh, a cultural clue for understanding for us today, and then a practice for us to take with us as we go. Here's the insight. The question really from this first passage is, who is, the, who is Baal? Who is this God? Baal was a Canaanite god that many of the different surrounding cultures would have worshipped around Israel. Baal was often uh, displayed through a bowl or some kind of animal representation. He was also known in some situations as the god of fertility, the most powerful of all Canaanite gods. And so you would come to Baal for the hope of either harvest of crops or, or for a family. Baal was also known to be the god of lightning and fire. So notice here even the, the idea of setting up the altar. It's lightning and fire. Like, if, if Baal is the god of lightning and fire, he should be able to light this sacrifice. So this is, this is Baal, and, and, and God's people had been strayed by the kings and queens to worship this other god. And so Elijah, in a sense, challenges, Yahweh challenges this god, say, hey, who, who is the real god that's displayed here? Now, it might seem really silly to us that in our 21st century Western culture to say, like, hey, we would ever worship a uh, a, a cow or a bull that's displayed somewhere on an altar. It might seem silly to us to, to, in a sense, orient our lives around some kind of representation of a god like we see in this story. But in our culture, we have our own gods. We have our own gods that we worship. And often, they're really good things of God's creation that are distorted and made ultimate things. Tim Keller, who we talk about a lot here, and has really shaped our church and sadly this year has been battling cancer. Uh, and yet the Lord has been really faithful to him. Tim Keller says there's four main gods or idols of our hearts in Western culture that we constantly come up against, that we constantly orient our lives around to worship. It's comfort, control, success, and approval. Comfort, control, success, and approval. All good things of God's creation 
that are distorted and made ultimate things that we orient our lives around. And we go to great lengths to get comfort, control, success, and approval. In this passage here, I, I always think it's, it, it's kind of gross, right? You, you watch them begin to, to hurt themselves to get the attention of their God. But man, we will go to great lengths as human beings to get comfort, control, success, and approval to our own detriment. To hurt ourselves for the sake of these different gods that we worship in our culture and in our own hearts. So the practice, there's really two practices here in this first story I want us to think about this week is do we question the gods of our hearts, the things that we orient our worship around? Whether it's comfort, control, success, or approval, maybe one of those comes to the surface for you. The question I want us to wrestle with this week is, can that thing, can comfort, control, success, or approval deliver you? Can it deliver you? And so when you're tempted this week to think about, hey, I want to strive, I want to reach for, I want to grasp comfort, control, success, or approval to orient my entire life around, can you ask the simple question to yourself, hey, can this God deliver me? No matter how much comfort I get, no matter how much control I have, no matter how much success I get in my career or whatever I'm going after, no matter how much approval I get from people, can it actually deliver me? Or will I only be an insatiable drive for more and more because it's never enough? False gods never fail to fail. We always need more comfort or more control or more success or more approval to scratch the itch of our hearts that ache to worship. Can this God deliver me? And the second question I would ask is, whatever those one of those gods that maybe you find yourself worshiping, what kind of fruit is it producing in your life? What kind of fruit? Let me give you an example from my own life. Mine is probably control. That's, my, that's my, the God that I think my heart most gravitates towards. The more you try to control things, you know what happens often in the fruit of my life? Is you get angry. You get irritated. You get frustrated when things aren't, doing, the things, things aren't going the way you want them. When your kids aren't responding the way they should, you begin to try to control and manipulate and it brings anger, unhealthy anger. It brings irritation out of my heart. And then I sin against my neighbor. And no matter how perfect my kids were to behave, or no matter how perfectly things were to go, no matter how scripted my sermon might be, no matter how everything might be lined up, there's always more control that you can grasp for. More things you can try to perfect. And you get angry and irritated when they don't come out the way you want them to. Can this God deliver me? And secondly, what kind of fruit does comfort, control, success, or approval as an ultimate thing produce in my life? We might not worship Baal, but we worship our own gods and our own culture. Notice here in the passage how the gods or the prophets of Baal are going to great lengths to get Baal's attention. And then notice the simple, non-anxious prayer of Elijah to get Yahweh's attention. So if the first practice this week was, hey, to question the gods that we order our hearts around, the second practice, I think, is this. As we think about the story, can we offer simple yet bold prayers to our God, Yahweh, who hears and listens and responds? A lot of us, I think, come to God with our prayers out of anxiety. We have this anxious response of trying to get God's attention in some way, like we see the prophets of Baal here. And yet, how could we come with a non-anxious, 
short, simple, yet bold prayers before God. Like what if we prayed like Elijah did? God, I know who you are, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've seen you work in history. So I ask simply right now, would you respond? Would you do this thing? Would you heal this person? Would you open up this door? Would you free this person or myself from this addiction? Whatever that is, a simple yet profound prayer, not out of an anxiety, but out of a peaceful presence, knowing that God hears and He responds. He hears and He responds. I want to do that right now, actually. Just in the quiet of this space, I want you to offer a simple yet bold prayer before God. Just like the, the Elijah did on the altar there, what's a simple yet bold prayer for God to do something in your life or in the life of your neighbor? Just offer it real simple to God right now. Don't try to caveat it or worry about how it sounds. Just, just offer in boldness a simple prayer. So we see this powerful moment where God moves in an, in an amazing way. That God can do things that we can't even fathom. Like that should bring wonder to us as we see how God can move in his story and in history. But, we're going to move from this story to the very next one because God not only speaks to us and his presence not is just not in this the wonder or in the spectacular, but it's also in a whisper, which we see here in the next story of Elijah. So if you turn to Ex, or Exodus, 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me read from verse 1 through verse 18. 1 through 18. Think about the context of what Elijah has just experienced and then how quickly and drastically the story shifts here. Just one chapter later. It says this, uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of them. Uh-oh. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Just to give you some context here, Horeb is where uh, Moses encountered the burning bush. Verse 9. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the Lord appears to Elijah, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, 
but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram and Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel, Mehalah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. We go, to God, we go from God speaking in this spectacular moment to him speaking in a gentle whisper. Here's an insight I want us to see from the passage. Notice how it starts with Elijah is overwhelmed with crippling fear. Crippling anxiety and fear. Uh, really interesting on this commentary on this passage. Uh, it says Jezebel threatened um, Elijah. Well, Ahab earlier had kind of threatened Elijah too, the, the king. But Ahab was seen as not as powerful as his wife. Jezebel was actually really who was in charge. And so when Jezebel actually says like, hey, I'm going to take your life, Elijah freaked out. But think about the context. He had just watched God take a drenched pot of water that had a sacrifice be like fire came down from heaven and now he's running for his life like what happened if God could light that fire couldn't God protect Elijah from Jezebel he went from victory to being suicidal a couple of years ago I was uh, I was reading this book that that outlined cognitive distortions they're called Basically, cognitive distortions are things that how anxiety uh, and fear hijack our brain and how we think. Let me list the, the seven main ones here and see if you resonate with any of these as you think about your own anxiety and fear, much like what Elijah was experiencing. Listen to these. The first one is this, catastrophizing. You focus on the worst possible outcome. Well, if I fail at this, my life is over. Overgeneralizing, using a simple heart experience to be the lens in which you see everything else. In other words, you become suspicious of how other experiences reaffirm your bad one you had. See, this always happens to me. Mind reading, assuming you know that what other people think of you without any evidence. It's like that car ride home after you meet with somebody, ah, she thinks I'm a loser. Dichotomous thinking, it's black and white thinking, it's either or it's all or nothing. It was a complete waste of time. I get rejected by everyone. I'm a horrible father, mother, brother, spouse, worker. Negative filtering. You only focus on what is wrong. Look at all the ways I suck. No one likes me. Discounting the positive. I do this to Keaton all the time. You're supposed to say that. You're my wife. You're supposed to say that. Oh, that that's, you discount anything that gives you positive feedback. Blaming, this is the last one. You focus on other people as a source of your negative feelings. My parents caused all my problems. 
when I first read this list, I honestly had a quick prayer for Keaton, my wife, and for Sarah and Chris, Sarah uh, Hamilton and Chris Gonzalez, because I've seen all seven of these in my life. It was like, oh, this this is a real this is a real thing. You, you even maybe for you, maybe one of these sticks out to you, but you even see this in Elijah's life. I'm the only one left. Take my life. I'm, I'm done. I've had one, this one threat, this one bad experience. Now I'm letting that filter my entire experience of who God is. What about for you? Which, which of those do you find yourself, ah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I, I do that regularly. There's these uh, two uh, uh, sociologists. I think they're sociologists. Maybe a psychologist. They, they say that in our culture right now, we're, we're having this wave of deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. There's three groups uh, that, that uh, is growing as far as deaths of despair. It's those who are um, poisoning themselves to death through the use of drugs. Those who are drinking themselves to death through the use of alcohol. And those that are taking their own life. All three are rising in rapid forms across the world, particularly though in Western culture, the culture that we're living in. Check this out. This is, this is crazy. For uh, males under the age of 45, suicide is the second leading cause of death. We have an epidemic of anxiety and fear that cripples us, maybe much like what Elijah experienced in this story as he was threatened by Jezebel. Although he had experienced God work in a spectacular way, he was overwhelmed and crippled by fear and anxiety. Here's the question I want you to process with the people around you. How does God respond to Elijah's crippling fear and anxiety? What does God do in the story? Turn to the people around you, discuss, what does he do? Try to be really specific. What do you see Elijah, or what do you see God doing for Elijah in the story as he responds to his anxiety and fear? Ready, set, go. I'd love to hear from a couple of you. We're having some good conversation up front here, not to put them on the spot, but what does God do in the story to respond to Elijah's anxiety and fear? What do you guys see? Just shout it out. Yeah. Yeah, if I was responsive to you, I'd be like, dude, get it together. Come on. Like not coming with a whisper. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what's about his response being a gentle whisper to Elijah's fear and anxiety? What if we responded that way? What else? He's not alone. So do you see him catastrophizing? I'm the only one left. Did you see the very last verse? Bro, there's 7,000 people I've set aside. You're going to be all right. Like we need that sometimes, right? Hey, it might seem overwhelming right now. It's going to be okay. What else? Maybe one more thing. He fed him. Thank you, Matt. He, do you guys, don't overlook the significance of that. 
He didn't give him a counseling session in the moment. He didn't try to fix his problems. He said, hey, you're probably hungry. And you're thirsty. He's hangry? Yeah. Here's some food and some water. The journey is too much for you. This week, in a world that is built on distraction and noise, you can't hear a whisper when there's a lot of sound. Let's pray for God to work in spectacular ways, in ways of wonder, but let's create and carve space and cultivate space in our lives to hear God's whisper. To hear God's whisper. I love this story. And as I was thinking this morning uh, through this, this passage, I was struck by what Matt just said about the food and the water. Take and eat. The journey is too much for you. My friends, this morning, as we come to the table here that's been uh, extended to you, not only has Yahweh said, take and eat. The journey is too much for you. Jesus says to you, Take and eat. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and need rest. Take and eat. Our first response, I think, from this passage today is to come, from, come to the table to take and eat, to be nourished on Jesus' body and His blood. We need his nourishment to carry us on for the journey like Elijah did and to be reminded like he reminds Elijah, it's going to be okay. I'm in control. I've taken good care of human history and I provided for you a savior who has forgiven your sin and offered you freedom and redemption. Take and eat. Take and eat. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read. The, our, uh, our passage here from 1 Corinthians that we read every week to orient ourselves and remember what story we're a part of when we take the bread and the juice. It says this, On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As we come to the table, let's recite our profession, the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, he's risen, and he will come again. Let's say it together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Please come, take and eat.